Recorded live in the Phantasmo Lounge, high atop the Strawberry Malted Building in beautiful Midtown Portsmouth, Virginia. It's Phantasmo After Dark with your host, Rob Floyd, and co-host, Joe Pilconis. Tonight's topic, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the old podcast here, and hello, Joe. Hello, Rob. Coming to you live from beautiful Atlanta, Georgia. Via satellite. That's right. I'm sure there's a, there's one there's one up there somewhere that uh, that's handling us right now. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. You know, glad we finally got to do this again here. Yeah, you know, it's been over a year since since we did the last. Yeah. One. Well, you know, and it's one of those things with everybody that I try to get to do these with. I, I mean to do it more often and sooner, but real life gets in the way, and then it's yeah. like, oh. It's Saturday, and I have a podcast due Monday. I better do something, you know. Oh, you're telling me how many times have I looked? Have I eagerly looked at my Facebook page only to see, well, uh, due to technical difficulties, our, our podcast will be del- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is gonna be postponed a day or two, or it'll, it'll be up next week, or yeah, yeah. Being a grown up sucks. <laughs> this <laughs> this will definitely be worth the wait because this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, th- the reason being, when I was a kid, uh, Channel 11, WPIX out of New York, used to um, show, they, they called it the Sunday morning movie. It was 11.30 in the morning every Sunday. But all it was, it was all Abbott and Costello films. They would oh, cycle cool. through the enti- entire catalog. And there's about 35 movies. So that means like every nine months or so, you, you can do the math, <laughs> you get to see the ones that you like. And uh, that was definitely the I would you know scroll through TV Guide every every week to see which one they were playing that week, and this was the one that I always made sure never to miss, because if you if you if you're that familiar with Abbott and Costello's catalog, you'll find that they have movies that are absolute classics. Um, Buck Privates is one that comes to mind that that should be you know preserved historically and then they have oh, some yeah. absolute horrible 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 <laughs> sad movies um and, and actually meet the mummy i think is probably at the at the bottom of the list um yeah, yeah. talking about monster themed movies i i went we have a a very uh, very excellent museum here in atlanta called the carlos museum and a while back they had a uh a special event night called uh mummies and milkshakes where they actually oh. <laughs> had real mummies in in uh, in sarcophagi, and uh, then they brought the kids into their little theater and they gave them milkshakes and they played two short fi- or two films. One was the Three Stooges Mummies Dummies, and the kids <laughs> rolled. They loved it. Then they put on Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, and one by one. The kids started wandering around, then they started fidgeting, oh. then they started talking, and eventually nobody was watching the screen. That's how that's how poor wow. that was. You know, I don't know if I've even seen that one now that you're saying I thought I had, but I don't I can't recall anything about it. So it was one of the last ones they made together and they were they were really getting on in years. They were they were yeah. much older. They uh, they didn't have the the timing or the athleticism that they did in their earlier films and oh, it really is a, okay. a sad outing for them because another thing you have to realize when you when you're dealing with comedy teams like Abbott and Costello and the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges is in the beginning they did like 20 years of vaudeville before they even appeared once on a movie screen. oh yeah of course yeah a lot of people don't yeah a lot of people don't even realize that and and the work that you know that they did like that like live in vaudeville 
before they even got into films, they had paid their dues a hundred times over. And they could work on the same material over and over and over again. So, you know, one thing I, I learned recently, I, I directed a uh, version of Who's on First for a local community theater, and I was doing some research on it. <laughs> and what I didn't realize was that Abbott and Costello didn't write Who's on First. That oh, was really? a sketch. That was a sketch that had been traveling through vaudeville for years and years, and they just perfected it. And they managed wow, to get it on radio. And, I didn't know that. Right. It's amazing. And the rest is history. They made it. I mean, it's gold. It's it's sure. probably one of the, the greatest comedy bits, top five greatest comedy bits of all time. Their version of it, anyway. Doing my research, I, I, I watched maybe 20 different versions that still exist and the timing <laughs> is all it, it changes a little bit they they change it around but the timing is impeccable oh you yeah can't get better timing than that yeah well you know that's one thing i noticed when i was watching uh abbott and costello meet frankenstein again here recently is you forget if you haven't seen them in a long time or seen their stuff in a long time you remember who's on first but their timing for everything when they're at their peak like this is amazing. Is it, you know, impeccable. It's like everything, boom, it hits the mark on the money. And, you know, the comedy that comes out of their actions and reactions to each other is just, I mean, you know, it's pro right down the line. You, you know, exactly. you can't get even any when they than that. Even when they step on each other's lines, it's deliberate. Yeah. And yeah. it's it, it, it's flawless. And what what you find if you if you go through the uh, the catalog is in the early days when they were young and they were hungry and they were eager, um, what they did was they brought with them a number of sketches that they had done ten thousand times on stage, which are incredible. Oh, As yeah. time goes by, though, they're having to rely upon writers. They're 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 not having control uh. of their scripts. And so what you got is you, you they would they would take something that Abbott and Costello did well in the case of the movie we're talking about. It's it's Lou being scared. Lou, Lou is, is uh -huh. a master at, at being that little little child being afraid. And they kind of built a framework around it. Um, yeah. So as you go on in years and in movies, they 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 run out of material. And especially if you, I, 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 I'm a huge Abbott and Costello fan, so I used to buy, I, I bought cassettes of their radio program, and videos oh, of yeah. their television program, and it's, it's like the law of diminishing returns. Uh, you know, there, there's no oh. way they could, they could, you know, if they're relying on, relying on a team of writers, it's, it's, it's bound to go downhill. So the, the end was really, really sad. Uh, the, the, yeah. the final movies are almost unwatchable. But this one. Um, this I think they're at their peak at this one. Um, oh yeah, this is definitely their A game on this. I mean, like like I was saying, even the the little the nuances of, of physical stuff that they do, and it's it's almost an afterthought, or it looks like it's an it looks like it's an ad lib or not done on purpose, but it has the timing in it. It has to be rehearsed and done and on purpose for it to work that well. I think. Oh, absolutely. You know? And just the little things, like it was one bit where Lou is holding up his hat or playing with his hat or something, and Bud is like pointing at him. And in like one motion, he's playing with his hat. He just he like hangs his hat on Bud's finger and turns to walk away, like it was just casual, you know. But it had to be both hands had to be up at the same time. At boom, that right moment, and 
in the dialogue for that to work and look that casual. You know? That's right. And, <laughs> and to and make you it know funny. That sometime in back in 1918 in some sleazy little theater in texas they did that for the first time and they really they they got the laughs yeah. you know I, yeah. I i read i read that the marx brothers when the marx brothers did a day at the races they actually took the material on the road and they had someone there with a stopwatch who would time oh, I heard the laughs yeah. they would time the laughs so that in the on the film they would leave that long of a gap for the audience to react so that the next joke wasn't stepped over by audience laughter. I and mean, that's how carefully yeah. it was done. This is a science. It's not, you know, a lot of people think that comedy is easy or that, that, uh, that it's easy to play dumb. It's not, you know, Lucas no, no, was no, an no, intelligent no, no. guy. I, and I tell you the way you can find that out is go to any local comedy night in any town <laughs> and watch <laughs> some, some stand up or watch an improv group. Uh, you know, oh. that's not, a professional that's been around a long time on the road or Second City, just any local improv group, 90% of them aren't going to be that damn funny because everybody thinks they can be funny now because of whose line is it anyway and and stuff like that. Sure. You know, I used to manage a nightclub and on Wednesday nights we had uh, there, there was a there's a big comedy club in Atlanta called The Punchline. Uh, who that's it, owned by uh, Jeff Foxworthy's manager, as a matter of fact. Oh. And what we would do is we would have a comedy night on Wednesday, and he would bring his headliners in a couple of days early because the headliners would go on on the weekends. This would give the headliners another gig, a little bit of extra money. And yeah. what what Jamie would do is he would bring some of his either his up and coming comics or the comics that wanted a shot but didn't deserve the punchline. So they would come to <laughs> our club. And I, I, I sat at, at a table with Jamie one night, and there was this one comic that melted down on stage. He didn't Ooh. get the laughs he expected. He didn't get the laughs that he predicted when he was rehearsing in his mom's basement, basically. And suddenly you saw this guy start screaming at the audience about how stupid they were and how they should have appreciated his material. And it was awful. And wow. I watched Jamie. Jamie got up from the table and physically grabbed this by the collar and got, grabbed him by the collar and yanked him off stage. I mean, you know, that, it, it, comedy can be painful. Comedy can be painful oh, yeah. to watch. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like the old, I forget who it was. It was on his deathbed. And it's an old story, but it's true. You know, and they asked, uh, you know, what is it like to die? Is it hard to die? And he said, no, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. I mean. It's true. Real good, honest, you know, belly laugh comedy to, to make that happen. It, it, it's all about timing and being clever and understanding the dynamics of the of the bit you know and all that and there's a lot of people who just don't have it or don't know it all right let, let's let's segue on to the fact that this movie didn't necessarily wasn't necessarily a guaranteed make here because uh initially uh the story goes that luke costello hated the script uh the quote that circulated oh, yeah. was that my five-year-old daughter could have written a better script than this um, the script was supposed to be a legitimate film in the universal canon called The Brain of Frankenstein. And yeah. it, like any other script, it floated around, and finally they decided to uh, to throw it to Abbott and Costello for comedic effect, and Lou hated it. But I understand that his choice of director and an advance of $50,000 um, changed his mind, uh, which, you know... I, it changed mine too. I mean, that's right. <laughs> when do we start? You know, uh, pull my trailer up to the back. 
That's right. I subscribe to a lot of uh, classic monster forums, and there's all, there's always a big argument as to whether or not this was a respectful treatment uh, for the final appearance of, uh, yeah. of our favorite monsters. Yeah, you're right. People go back and forth on that, and a lot of people say that it, they were very respectful, and a lot of people say they weren't. And I think you got you have to break it down into the different parts of the movie. You know what I mean? The parts where it's just the Universal monsters without with that Abbott and Costello aren't in is handled like a Universal monster movie, you know? But then when Bud and Lou come in and the monsters in the same way, it's handled, you know, it, it has to be. It's a comedy. It's almost like it's two separate movies edited together on the, using the same script, you know? But it doesn't hurt it, I don't think. I see it in a, in a more complex way, I think, because just like... Uh you know, the, the, one of the best things for a comedy team is, is the most important part of a comedy team is the straight man. I think the fact that Lon Chaney and Bela and Glenn Strange played it absolutely legit. They did not. Oh, yeah. They didn't play it up for laughs. They were playing straight. And I think that created a good enough contrast that made the comedy that much more effective. Because Lon yeah, Chaney and, is and, not going for laughs. Lon Chaney is going for pathos, you know, as he always did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, right from the—in fact, he's the first thing you see on the screen is Chaney in this. And it opens up, and his whole thing, it's its just like, okay, this is the next Universal Wolfman movie, you know? And right. even the scenes where he's in with Lou, he Lou doesn't phase him a bit. He's still going for that, that, that tall but pathos like he always has and selling it to you. And Lou's making his offhand quips, which are funny, but it's not even registering with Cheney. And speaking of uh, uh, keeping it straight and playing playing the part perfectly, Bela's back for uh, yeah. only his second appearance as Dracula ever, um, yeah. sadly enough. And from what yeah, I understand, yeah. Bela's agent had to beg and plead and threaten and finally, you know, guilt the producers into hiring him for this for this role which is yeah. really sad and makes no sense to me unless there's something that hasn't been told or something that you know because because who's who's more perfect can you can you t- i'm a i'm a i'm a mark for bill lugosi he's my he's my favorite and oh there's yeah. no there's no one like him and and in this movie especially and maybe not especially but in this movie his acting is superb oh it is he's just smooth and suave and and casual you know it's not like he's acting he's confident he's dracula and he knows it by god exactly exactly the only thing is is he's got too much makeup on well maybe (laughs) i think that was a necessity (laughs) probably probably but other than that his performance is a plus you know for bail it's right there it's the bailer you want to see you know i don't know if you're as weird as i am probably so that's why we're doing this but sometimes one line of a movie encapsulates what an actor does. And there's a one line in this movie that Bela delivers, and it, 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 all, it might seem inconsequential, but, but it, it struck me as, uh, as just, this is how serious this guy is, and this is so convincing. There's, it's, a, it's the scene where Bela is trying to convince Dr. Mornay to go along with the experiment. And yeah. she says, she says, my will is as strong as yours. And Bela says, are you sure? And the way he says it, every time yeah. I hear it, I get, I get chills. He's really into this. This isn't, he's oh, not yeah. this part in. Um, no, no. And he knows, 
He knows that. Uh, no, it's not, honey. <laughs> and you, no, could, it's not. you could li- you could line a hundred John Carradines up, and it, it, it's never going to be Dracula <laughs> like it like it would. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> that did you notice though in that scene, and then he goes to bite her on the neck. You could see his reflection. Yeah, you see him in the mirror. <laughs> yep, I've actually seen seen like threads on forums that are dozens and dozens of entries long about. It. Should they go in and fix that? You you have to wonder. Since the director was so into comedy, would that have even struck him at all? You know, yeah, as, he probably d- being... probably didn't even notice it. You know, and I guess since we've talked about Lon and and Bale, we have to talk about Glenn a little bit. Um, oh who, yeah, I, yeah. You know. I'm I'm a Karloff guy, have to admit. Oh, well, you have to be. And I think Glenn Strange was, you know, his size and the cragginess of his face is what made it. But that's all that you really do need because the monster is really just a prop, as he has been for, I think, three films past. Yeah, I mean, after, of course, Karloff, Karloff's three are untouchable. Okay, I mean, his performance in those, even in Sun where he doesn't have as much to do, he has a couple nice little bits in that that are just gold, you know? And then when Chaney takes over in Ghost, he's Chaney okay. Was no, I think he was the worst. I, if it, it, There's nothing there. Um, well, nothing. last time I watched it, I enjoyed it more than I remember enjoying it, but it wasn't, it wasn't great by any means. Then Bela comes in, and Bela got shit on by the studio on on Frankenstein meets the Wolfman because of the, well, you know, everybody knows that the, in the script, he speaks because sure. he speaks at the end of Ghost and he has Bela's voice. So why wouldn't he, being played by Bela, speak in Bela's voice? You know? yeah, absolutely. And so the way, and, the, and he's supposed to be blind in that. So the way he's lumbering around looks really stiff and looks a little, you know, people have said over the years, looks kind of goofy and all. And, and you know, and and trash Bela when it's like no, no, that the script called for it, but the editing and everything, and the and they took that whole part out that explains all of that, so you don't know that it's never presented in the film. So you know, I I love Bela, and he got like I said, he got screwed in that one, but that is still Frankenstein's Wolfman is one of my favorite Universal. But films. Bela, Bela was too old for that. I mean, you know, he was. Oh yeah, he was, he was like sixty, he was, wasn't he? Right, right, and you know, so there's there's no. You know, I think you see more of Eddie Parker than you do of, of Bela through most of the film. <laughs> you do definitely. And they did. They didn't try that hard to hide it either. No. You know, it, but but see, here's here's what I, what I have to remind myself when when I watch these films, is that back then we di- we didn't have the luxury of popping in a DVD and watching them all in one night or watching them back to back. Uh, yeah. You know, examining all of the inconsistencies and, you know, wow, I thought he was dead. No, he's he's back. Um, you know, this is <laughs> this is something that someone would see in a theater and then five years later see the next. Yeah. I, I don't think they could even envision that, you know, 70 years later. Here we are um, <laughs> yeah. discussing a man in a mirror. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Which, br- which brings us to Glenn Strange in the in the two house movies, which he barely has anything to do in those, but sit there and, and look menacing, you know, and just and look good in the makeup, you know, pretty much. But doesn't um, that beg the question if if, if even then people realize that it was Karlo- Karloff's humanity and, you know, the, the more sensitive side of the monster and the the. the that created the greatness that he was, wouldn't it have been just as easy to write something like that into the script? 
it seems to me like it wouldn't be a big deal at all. But it was totally ignored. There, Glenn Strange doesn't have any moments. Oh um, no! However, he does have he does have one big laugh. The scene where Bela is carting him out of the McDougal's House of Horrors, and the monster gets scared of Lou. Um, yeah, it, it was kind of cute, and that's probably the I think the only time in it that you could maybe argue that they don't treat the monsters with the respect. I think the rest of it, and it's 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 a cute, quick laugh, and almost like almost like a, a wink to the audience, which it didn't bother me at all you know didn't at all um, i agree but it did throw me every time almost every time i watch this i forget that the monster speaks in this when did he get his power of speech back you know if, <laughs> if this is a continuous storyline which of which of course it isn't speaking of of little mistakes that we were talking about before do you uh there's a, a part in the where bud and lou are wrestling around with each other in the basement where lou slips and calls bud abbott oh <laughs> They left that in. There's a there's a on the on the DVD and I think you can find it on YouTube. There's a collection of outtakes from oh yeah from, those are from great. the film. My favorite is when Lou is on Glenn Strange's lap in the basement and Glenn can't hold it. He he starts. Yeah. That's that's priceless. <laughs> yeah, because apparently he was a big Abbott and Costello fan. I, I'm so glad that moments like that survived because so much stuff hasn't survived over the years. That, oh God, uh, you ain't kidding. And wouldn't you like to see Lugosi's screen test for Frankenstein or or the, oh. the, the spoken dialogue in, uh, in Meets the Wolfman? Um, yeah. Back then, yeah, I would nope. love to have somebody find that somewhere, you know, or, or at least just a picture of him from his screen test as Frankenstein as the well, monster, I, you know. If I if I remember correctly, the um, the scene from uh, Karloff's first Frankenstein, the scene with the little girl was found in someone's attic, the only known copy. Oh, yeah. And married to the original, and it's still—you can tell it's not—it's—it's it's not the same quality as the, uh, as the print yeah. that they they struck the movie from. But it's just great to, that it that it exists. You know, I, I mentioned this yeah. the last time the last time we we got together, but you know, to me, it's, there's something tragic about how time is making films like this and all sorts of films just disappear. That there's so oh, much yeah. new, new content, so much so much you know stuff that 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 is like an overdose of stimulus that trying to get kids to even watch black and white films is a challenge now. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tragic. I mean, cause there's so much good stuff out there and you know, and it's, it's the same for me. It's the same with music. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, we both come from, you know, musical backgrounds and stuff. And a lot of people that I know my age, a little younger, you know, they know everything that's out now or the, the stuff that was in, in high, they grew up in high school in say the '90s or the '80s or whatever, and I'm going back and rediscovering older stuff, and they're like, "Hey, have you heard of such and such or whatever new thing has just come out?" And I'm like, "No, I don't listen to the radio that much, you know." And like, "Yeah, but this is the hottest thing or whatever." I'm like, "I I don't know it because there's so much that's come out before that's more interesting to me that I'm rediscovering or discovering for the first time." And maybe I'm a cantankerous you know? old man, but most of the new stuff is crap. It really, oh, it is. It, you know, I, you know, I, and, and I, can, I can hear my grandmother, you know, talking about how great Guy Lombardo and his and how great Lawrence <laughs> Welk was. Maybe I'm stuck in an era, but well, I, I yeah, I know I am, but I mean, you know, but I listen to stuff before that my before my era and even before the era that i really like you know and once in a while once in a while something new will come out that's like well that's not bad but overall i can't tell you when i bought a new 
CD or anything. Neither me, me too. That's the same case with me. I'm not interested. You know, and it's a, I'm not interested in yeah, what's on the radio. Yeah, and it's the same thing with with movies too. Yep. I, I mean, I, there there are there are films that will draw me in by because of the subject matter or an actor, but by and yeah, large, yeah, of course. You know, I, you know, I was I was one of the world's biggest comic book fans, and you couldn't drag me kicking and screaming nowadays to the, you oh, know, the, br- the brother the, the, the latest Marvel <laughs> mashup and. You know, oh, we don't want to go down that road right now. Uh, probably not. Let me probably tell you, not. We're, it's because <laughs> that's a whole, that's a whole podcast. That's a grumpy old man podcast <laughs> right there. And I got an hour or two's worth of that. Oh God! I, <laughs> no, I, 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 rem- I remember you and Tony going back and forth about the 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 new Batman movies, and I thought, wow, that's dangerous. I wasn't going to stick my hand in that tank. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, but it's it's even worse now. I mean, with the Marvel stuff, I'm going to see them. At this point, because I've got, I'm invested in, in what's already come. I've seen so many of them. I'm just kind of curious as to where they're going, but I really don't have any excitement. I go see them like two or three weeks after they've been out. Part of me could really give a shit about them, right. <laughs> but I'm just curious as to where they're going because they've strayed so far from the source material. And the source material is originally what drew me in and made me love these characters to begin with, that what's on the screen isn't recognizable as any of that. Because it's all derivative, you know. You, know, you, you get the the Dark Knight was so successful that now suddenly everything has to be dark and gloomy, and realistically, it's a business decision because, you know, you're talking about movies that cost half a billion dollars to make. No one can take a chance now, so you have to go with yeah. what what with what's trending. Same, and it's exactly the same with music. And now you take out the the large revenue streams for music. You know, no one makes money play music anymore they they you, oh, know, no. you, might, you might have these superstars who who earn money on concert tours or through merchandising or things like that but we have to you know accept the fact that because of technology and because of the way the world works and because of evolution music is free it's sad yeah. and it's it, it's sad that you can't make a you know no one's going to make the kind of money the stones made in the 70s I, you know i compare it to encyclopedia salesmen you know there was once a time where you could make a good living selling these big clunky <laughs> yeah. books door to door and now what you what you know what a thousand dollar set of books would cost you could put on a a disc or a thumb drive and and have it talk to you and have it show videos and things like that you know you just oh yeah well i mean it's like our you know our friggin' cell phones can do more and have more on them than the computers that sent the first man to the moon that were as big as a room you know i had a a professor in college who uh during a lecture held up his new watch and he said, you see this? He said, this is more powerful than the computers that sent people to the moon. And it will continue to get cheaper and it will continue to get smaller and it will continue to get more powerful. And uh, we have no idea where we're going. We have no idea where we're headed. But that same technology allows us to do podcasts from several different states away. And, That's uh, right. And, and uh, as you sa- said earlier, it allows us to, you know, watch these these you know beloved movies preserve them and be able to watch them at our fingertips anytime we want it, want to does it change and your habits of, of viewing though because i tend to skip around i love to i love to put my videos on a timeline and go to the parts that i like and then it'll say oh I, yeah well, let's let's go back a couple of scenes to where this happened um, oh <laughs> it depends on it depends on my mood you know it depends on what i'm in for if i'm really in the mood i you know i haven't seen this movie in a long time I want to. I'll sit down and watch the whole thing. If it's something where I was thinking about this movie and I, I kind of wanted to see it, 
but this one part just kind of stuck in my head. I might watch it and then fast forward to that and then go, oh, wait, I want to see this other part, too. You know, this is really good. Um, and so, and sometimes I'm trying to segue here back into the movie because we, we are really oh, going for it. Okay, well, let's do that then. <laughs> um, one of the things, I had a new revelation when I watched this movie in, in preparation for this podcast. And yeah. that is... The and it, it struck me as is brilliant because I hadn't thought about it before. The uh, the masquerade ball, the masquerade ball had to be in there because yeah. it was the only way to get Bela into the tux. Otherwise, ah, yeah, because of the time frame, because of of the time it's happening, and you know, it's got cars and trucks and stuff like that. The only way to get Bela into his Dracula costume is to set it in uh, a masquerade ball and that struck me as how brilliant was that somebody in a room somewhere said hey i know how we can get bailey into that into the monkey suit let's yeah. do that so i well, my you know, hats I think, off to whoever whoever thought of that idea it struck me as brilliant. oh yeah well yeah i think this was the first one too and correct me if i'm wrong here i think this might have been the first film where it takes a real world cynical view uh, of the fantastic characters you know, it's like if, if you see a movie today and they say, you know, oh, well, you know, Dracula, oh, you mean the comic book, you know, Dracula from the, the books and the stories, vampires aren't real, blah, 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 you know, whereas in these movies back then, and even up to, and that's the thing I love about the 50s atomic movies and stuff, too, it's uh, if they said, well, we've got a vampire in town, well, what should we do about it? You know, it was just taken that that was true, that, you know, they <laughs> nobody said, what do you mean, vampires? And in this, you know, he says, I turn into a werewolf. Yeah, you and four million other guys, pal. Great and line. Then, great line. Classic Yeah, line. great line. He's Dracula. Oh, you mean my costume? You know, because yeah. he's in the tux, like you say. He's like, yes, I'm a costume. My costume, I'm dressed as Dracula, even though I'm really Dracula. You know, <laughs> I think this was the first film that kind of took that approach. The implication there is that Dracula is a cultural icon that anybody would know. Mm-hmm. Well, how how else would uh, how else would that would that that exchange go down? Um, yeah, and, and you know it, what I wonder though is when you you're talking about the 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 atomic movies of the fifties, to me that kind of says that the writers were respecting their audiences less and less and less. They were aiming for that drive-in crowd who were just out to see the giant bug on the screen, and oh yeah, you know, continuity and things like that didn't didn't really matter. If you if you go back, let's go back to Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. Those were almost classical scripts, you know. Oh yeah, things that were yeah. very very serious. Even Bride, which wasn't meant to be necessarily one hundred percent serious, it was played for real. And oh yeah, yeah. There was terror there. By the time we get to House of Dracula, it it's you know. It's, it's it strikes me as being a knockoff. I hate House of Dracula. I, I've I've got it. That's my least <laughs> well, favorite. It's, it's movie two separate canon. movies. I mean, you know, it's yeah. the, it's the Carradine bit at the beginning, or it was how was Drac That was the first one, right? That was House of Frankenstein, where Carradine just had his little separate section. Oh yeah, House of Frankenstein was first, and House of Dracula. Okay, right. House of Frankenstein. Let me go back to that then. Yeah, that's like two separate movies. You've got the the fifteen twenty minute Dracula film. 
And then you've got the Frankenstein, Mad Doctor, and Wolfman film. <laughs> House of Dracula, yeah, that's mesh, mesh it all together into one film, and it's still almost like three separate stories that don't quite fit together that well. Because it's a mashup. It, it's 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 almost like, yeah. you know, we, we've got to have all three or four or however, because I, I, I've seen posters for... Um, for House of Frankenstein, where uh, Daniel is is uh, the hunchback. Well, yeah, I guess he is, but <laughs> yeah. you know he's not the classic hunchback of Notre Dame, of course. But once again, yeah. they thought. I guess they thought, you know, hey, if if two monsters were great, four's got to be even better, um, and that ain't necessarily so. No, no, especially even one as, of them is Carradine. <laughs> right. Well. God bless him, but he's he's uh, he's are, not a Dracula. I mean, no, there are things that he's done that that have that have impressed me a lot. Boy, it's hard not to get off track here, isn't it? Um, <laughs> That's all right. Tangents is what it's all about. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's you know, and and it, because I spent the whole week going, oh wow, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to. Like, <laughs> well, let's talk good. about some of that then. That was a good good enough segue for me. Um, Actually, yeah. The, that's you know I, I give i give it a four and five in its class um <laughs> i don't have anything deep at all i was just gonna say you're talking about the masquerade ball it's like how about that uh that werewolf mask that uh bud wears it looks nothing like cheney as the wolf man <laughs> well, but he still confuses cheney uh, you know he has he has bud in the mask <laughs> Well, you know, more more incredible than that though was was uh, Lon's reaction just to seeing the mask, where he totally yeah. digs out. No pun intended. Um, yeah. <laughs> once again, that's Cheney. That, that's Cheney protecting, in my opinion, that's Cheney protecting his beloved character. Oh um, yeah. You know, the Wolfman was Cheney, and he and he always. Uh, embraced the character and and played it so legitimately. I've read some odd quote that um cheney always wanted to have a scene in a film where he cried that to him that was the the uh oh. the, ul the ultimate for him um, well, you know if he wanted to if he wanted to cry they could have gotten him to play wolverine because apparently he cries in every damn movie there you go there you go oh, um don't even okay i'm sorry i, I don't go down that road <laughs> uh, Let's go back to right. cheney. that's all right i got control over the edit anyway so i'm, I'm in good shape um <laughs> With, awesome. With, we'll fix it in post. That's right. That's 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 absolutely <laughs> right. The uh, by the way, I, I'm I, you know, whenever I talk about this film with people, I, I it's great to bring surprises on them, things that they don't expect. But dealing with someone with your expertise, it's almost like um, stop me if you've heard this one. <laughs> but um, are you aware that uh, that Lon is actually the Frankenstein monster in I think about three seconds of this film? Yes. Yeah. I, I meant to bring that up, too. Um, and I love watching it and, you know, picking that part out. But yeah, because it was it Glenn. He broke his foot or something. Right. Right. Or throwing sprained his out. ankle or something like that towards the he end broke, of the shooting. He broke his ankle throwing the girl out the window. Oh, yeah. 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 And uh, um, yeah. And, and Lon steps into the into the big uh, shoes and fills in. Somehow I get the impression that that on that day when when Glenn's having his ankle bandaged up, uh, Lon is all over everybody going, well, I can do it. You want me to do it? I can do it. I can do it. Um, <laughs> put me in the chair. I can do it. Oh, speaking of being put in the chair, this was uh, one of the first movies that did not feature Jack Pierce as makeup artist. That's right. Um, That's he right. Was, he was uh, ignominiously fired 
because he refused to go along with uh, modern standards and use rubber masks and things like that. He he was still set on cotton and collodion, and they just fired him. Uh, which yeah. you know, you know Very nowadays sad. nowadays the makeup artist would have a patent on his own creation, and he'd be you know you know I'm thinking of Rick Baker, I guess. But yeah. uh, back in back in those days, it's we, like bye, see ya. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and. Quite honestly, this is my least favorite Wolfman makeup. The uh, I said Jack Keevan, I think, mm-hmm. did this, and I just don't like it. I it, it's too tight, and the nose is is too big or looks funny. And of course, now you know Pierce his his Wolfman makeup changed slightly with each film because he did it by you know built it up every yeah. day by hand. But I think in Frankenstein meets a Wolfman, it's beautiful. And in which I, I guess is House of Frank, yeah, House of Frankenstein, the one with Elonka, yeah, Elonka the Gypsy Girl, yeah, uh, it looks it looks great. The makeup, the Wolfman makeup looks beautiful in those in those two films. And then I just I don't like what Keevan did with it. I mean, it, it looks better than the than the Route sixty six makeup <laughs> in that episode. <laughs> well, I, I've read that at one point, and I can't remember which film it was, but at one point. Um, there was a shortage because of World War II. There was a shortage of yak hair available, and they oh. had to, they had to go with a synthetic, and that was why it, it's in one of the films, and, and it's the reason that there's only one transformation scene because that involved the right kinds of hair that you could get. Oh. I've also heard okay. a story that's been that's been disputed, but that Cheney gave to a magazine back when he was older and uh, and a lot more feeble that Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein made him attempt suicide because of the pain and difficulty that he went through on that particular shoot of the transformation wow. scene that he would, and he, he way exaggerated this, but like he, he said that they would, they would take tiny nails and yeah. nail put, put nails through his, the skin of his hands to keep his hands steady so that he wouldn't yeah. move and they could get the shot and things like that. Um, but, oh, by the way, I, I did not mention I am wearing my Dracula versus Frankenstein ring here as we speak to add authenticity to the broadcast, ah, which I awesome. purchased from Mr. Floyd. <laughs> Boris aged with class. Um, yeah. Bela certainly did not. Poor Bela. No. no um, Bela had his addictions, and, and in lawn, it was alcohol was his, and I, I unfortunate. Honestly, I, I honestly believe part of Bela's problem, though, was that he loved to work too much. He loved to act. I honestly believe that that had a lot to do with Bela's career. I think he just wanted to work so badly because when he was given a great role, um, Igor is a is a great example. He was oh, yeah. stellar. But I, you know, I have a collection in 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 my studio of Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, and <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that film, by the way? You know, I've seen parts of it, but it was so long ago, I can't remember anything about it. It it, it features the absolute worst. Uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis imitators in the world. Oh, and yeah, those guys. I know who you're talking about. Once again, a very, very sick-looking Bela does his best to be as legitimate and 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 perfect as possible. And it, it back then, by the time he looked really bad, it was very sad to watch him. Or, or Bride of the Monster, things like that. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, to, it, you know, it's it is really sad because you you go from like Igor and then the Black Cat. You know where he's just awesome in in those roles, and then you go see him at the end like that. And it is it's really sad because he you know he was great when he was great. He was great, absolutely. The makeup I think <laughs> was nece- was necessary uh, in 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 meets Frankenstein. Oh, I'm sure. 
because if yeah. you look at the at the the aforementioned um, meets a Brooklyn gorilla, he looks awful. I mean, you know, it's like he there there's he looks like a frail old man, at least built yeah. up into uh, into Dracula makeup. Um, he's 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 okay, and his acting carries it. His acting just takes it away. And you know, it's like like in in this in in you know Abbott Costello here meet Frankenstein. He he's he is the Dracula that you want to see, every bit. You know, every time he's on screen, he doesn't falter. He doesn't. There, there's nothing that's not Dracula, you know, in his performance in this. He's sharp. He's solid. Except for those parts during the fight at the very end where you see this close up of him snarling and then the body double spinning the tables oh. around and knocking the <laughs> well, chairs Well, yeah, ex- except for that. <laughs> which goes right back to... Uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, which is how the how the fight films were 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 staged. You'd see the monster going Arr, and then all of a sudden you see Eddie Parker throw the guy <laughs> through the window. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it's climaxed by absolutely the worst process shot ever of the Wolfman and the Bat falling into the ocean. Uh, that could oh not yeah have looked tackier and phonier and yeah they should have cut that like just a. Quick cl- glance, and that was it. Yeah. They they stayed on that a little too long. Not a big budget film, obviously, so so they didn't have money for that. But into but what I did read in uh, in researching this, this was the second cheapest film that Universal International made that year, and it saved Universal the Universal International from bankruptcy. It was so successful. wow. That you know it, it it makes you wonder just how Universal was totally mismanaged around that time. It the the Lemleys had it stolen from them, and it was it was yeah mismanaged by movies with outrageous budgets that that, that sunk it. You know it it also makes me wonder. Universal kind of dumped Abbott and Costello later on, and and really disrespected them in terms of of money and you know. It, what a rotten business! I mean, you know, we're we're, oh. we're we're being exposed now to the Harvey Weinstein's of the world. But what a rotten business it was before. Oh, and it, it's always been that way. It's just we never saw it. You know, people kept their mouths shut, and you know, people just—it was the way of the business, good, bad, and different. You know, there's always crooks. There's always been bad guys in that business, and there's good guys too. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like. F- just completely bad guys, but it's a cutthroat business. I mean, you know, you ask people that have been in it a long time, like deep in, in Hollywood and stuff. I think the big money nature of the thing is, is what is inherently corrupt. And, you know, and also the fact that, that you've got a, uh, you've always got cannon fodder for victims because so many yeah. people, this is their big dream. They're will you know, I, 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 speaking of Harvey Weinstein, who, as we're taping this, would turn himself in this morning for uh, on I saw that, charges. Yeah. You know, I have to wonder just how credible the accusations are against him because there are so many people who are so desperate to get into this business. I know they're willing to do just about anything to do it. And oh, of course. Know, and so, is it a matter of now? You know, the 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 has beens and the wannabes or the never wases. Is this their chance to get revenge? Oh, yeah, I didn't get that part because I didn't do this or because I said that. Yeah. There's a lot well, of the people casting out there. couch has been an age old legend since film started. You know, that's just, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a, it is a bad thing, but that's just, it's been a legend and everybody's known about it. But to what degree? Right. Nobody's was quite sure of details, you know. 
To me, um, why, why force someone onto a casting couch when there are 20 girls outside who would gladly jump on it? That's Exactly. What, that's what makes me question things like And it's about power. Harvey Weinstein was a powerful, powerful, powerful man. And he could make you a star uh, if you were in his oh, good yeah. graces. So he kind of looks a little like Lou Costello, who's in this film that we were talking about. <laughs> I was going to say, you think Lou ever had to go on the casting couch? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it does make you wonder. Uh, are you familiar with a book called Hollywood Babylon? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, th- the 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 sequel Hollywood Babylon Two features some stories about Bud and Lou staging oh. their own little staging their own little orgies and um, Bud apparently was a connoisseur of uh, of pornography which at the time was probably very hard to get and very hard to watch because you'd probably oh, have yeah. to set up projectors and things like that so I don't know why I felt the need to throw that in it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Lionel Atwell was a notorious uh, whoremonger himself and orgiest of the day, if you will. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I, uh, George Zuko of the uh, the Universal Films ended up in an insane asylum. Um, so you have to wonder what was going on there. You know, what did, what did we not see yeah. for, for such an innocent I mean, time? That we're talking about how you brought up a point I thought was kind of interesting, how this film, it was had the smallest budget, but it saved Universal because of its success. And, you know, is was it because the script was okay. Lou hated it, but it worked. Do you think it was, you know, the stars were in, a, in alignment, everything fell perfectly into place, whereas you had to have Cheney because he wouldn't let anybody else play the Wolfman. So that's a given. But we had had Carradine playing Dracula. We got Bela, which just, and we're in agreement, he knocked it out of the park in this. Glenn Strange was Frankenstein at this point, so that was going to happen. Do you think it would have been, it would have made any difference or made it not as successful um, if Carradine had played Dracula in this, had kept on? No, not at all. I think the draw was Bud and Lou entirely. You know, I think it it was because the, 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 I don't know if it was the film they did before this or two films before this was a, a movie called Hold That Ghost which uh-huh. was a haunted house, you know, once again, Lou playing the scare, even the candle scene was in it. And I just, <laughs> it, because that's one of, one of the tricks in his trick bag. And honestly, you know, it's sad to say, I don't think, um, it, you know, it, it's great that we had the original monsters, but I don't think they were the draw. I think it was Bud and Lou that was the draw. And, uh, you know, um, it, well, uh, you know, the, the, the famous story is, you know, Boris refused to be a part of it, but Boris was part of the publicity campaign. He, he allowed himself yeah, to be right. photographed pointing to a poster. And the 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 quote that that someone supposedly captured was, all right, I'll do it as long as I don't have to see it. Um, <laughs> I don't think that I think the monsters had had worn out their welcome. I think they were they were convenient to give Lou something to be scared of. But I think the draw yeah. at that time was Bud and Lou. And, uh, well, they they were on top. Yeah. And, you know, and the success of this film parlayed this into, uh, meets the killer Boris Karloff and, um, you know, meets Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and meets the invisible man, which is probably the best of the, the bunch. Um, anybody who's interested in, in these types of films, watch Abbott and Costello meets the invisible man. It's, it's excellent. Um, cool. 
it's not broad it's focused it's it plays like a crime drama and um, ah. that that's definitely a favorite of mine meets frankenstein was was made in 1948 this was around the time that television began to rear its ugly head into oh, the situation uh-huh. and so you had uh, the original films are being shown again so i'm sure that uh that stirred up interest but i th- i i really do believe that the the comedy that you saw on television you know milton burl and things like that began to eat into the 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 novelty of a new bud and lou film and then when bud and yeah. lou got into television you know the bottom fell out because the the television show was was really it, it had it you know for a seven year old kid like me it was pretty cool but looking back on it you know it i mean think about it you know once again i draw a contrast to who's on first developed over 20 years on the stage and suddenly they're yeah. having to turn out a script in a week you know yeah. th- there there's no way you can you can compare that um it, it it has to get lousy and rotten, and uh, it did. And apparently, Bud and Lou didn't uh, didn't get along too well towards the end of days too. Um, Lou died of a heart attack, and Bud. I read a story about Bud Abbott. He he contacted a newspaper reporter and put a story in the papers asking all of his fans, uh, all of the fans that Abbott and Costello meant anything to, to send him a dollar. How sad is that? You know, that's a genuine tragedy. Bud died in poverty. Bud died in abject poverty with no money. And um, there's uh. a there, there's a, a picture. I think it's in the uh, Hollywood Babylon books, one of the Hollywood Babylon books. This is a picture of Bud in this little chintzy apartment. Um, and they took this, they set up this photograph of him reading Lou's obituary in the paper. And there's... Oh, nothing sadder you could you could you could dream up. Let's close out here on on a higher note and Excellent. bring the room back up. Uh, <laughs> Good. Idea. It is often it's often said that Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is the greatest horror comedy that's ever been made. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? I can't think of anything else that any other horror comedy that I've seen that doesn't disrespect the horror elements um and well first of all is it really horror were were the were the monsters scary by then i know to me they weren't they were characters they were you know they were predictable they all had their their superpowers or 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 their or their nothing scared me i i can't think of a single scary scene apart from maybe Chaney well, tearing up his hotel room um yeah i mean the monsters never well the monsters never scared me as a kid i mean they uh, the, the creepy there was a little creepy factor to them but i recognized the the pathos of the of the monsters and the and the outsider that they were and how you know for the most part the situations that they were in weren't their fault they were reacting to the world around them and reacting to the the curse that was put upon them or reacting to the situation they were in um right these were tragic characters all of them um, yeah they're all tragic characters but they are because because of the way the films are written and shot and everything they're very creepy and atmospheric and and of course a, a guy you know a wolf man jumping out of the shadows to rip your throat out okay yeah that's scary you know True. This walking dead guy coming at you. Yeah, that's scary. But for me, I kind of, I guess, more identified with them as a kid, you know, 
instead yeah, of being absolutely. scared by them. So it's hard for me to I have to step outside of the of it and you know look at it, try to look at it more objectively. But and I see where you're going though with it. Is it yeah? By this point, the the scariness they were more camp or looked on as camp than scary by the general public. Consider this. Imagine you are, I I don't even know if they they allowed kids into the theater at at this point, but imagine it's 1931. You are a guy who works on a farm. Uh, I think radio had just come into play. Maybe you don't own a radio yet. Maybe all you have are live vaudeville theater shows and movies. Uh-huh. Imagine you go in there. It's 1931. You, there's no radio. There's no television. And suddenly you see that three shot where Frankenstein's monster turns around for the first time. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Could, but imagine beautiful. what happens in your head. Imagine the reaction of that compared to someone watching the same film in 2018 where, you know, you, you you're, you're totally desensitized to, to, Blood oh yeah, and gore yeah. and all that. It's a completely well, people fainted in the theater then. Right, right. So you know, it was one of the things I like yeah, to do I when I watch these films that. is pretend, pretend I am in a theater in 1931, yeah. and I've never seen anything like this. This is totally out of the realm of my experience. That's the way those oh, films yeah. have to be taken in, into into context in their own in their own era. And that's what makes them. Oh great. yeah, and, and and you know, and I watch every time I watch them. Though I do watch them like that. I'm you know, I'm the same way with you. I mean, you know, the wonder of it, of what's happening on the screen, and putting yourself in that time. And another great example, a prime example of that is the uh, Cheney Seniors Phantom of the Opera. Every time I watch that, and the and the mask comes off, and that, that he does that, yeah. bolts upright, and that big you know open mouth grin. I, I kind of gasp a little bit myself. I, I'm not scared out of my, you know, out of my pants about it, but it's like, it's a, it's a little quick, little shocking little bit. I know it's coming. Yep. Yeah. But you think about audiences back then had no clue. And then boom, that's right in their face. It's amazing. And it still works to this day. Yeah. And, and even this one, um, it's like, you know, everything that had happened before, you know, it leads up to this one. And everything that had fallen into place, and with Adam Costello's career, with the monster's career, and then and then this movie comes into place, and like you say, Lou didn't like the script, but okay, give me a lot of money and I'll do it. It all comes down to money. Hold that ghost yeah. was was one of Abbott and Costello's most successful films. So some, you know, thoughtful producer said, "Hmm, we need to scare him again." Kids love to see Lou scared and love to whistle for Bud and can't do it, and that whole routine. We need to create another situation where we can make some more money once again it's the dark night yeah. thing you, you you create something that yeah. makes money and you have to repeat it until you beat it to death and then you either find something else that works or you keep on going down and down and down and down and down oh yeah and it, this is especially true with bud and lou because if if you look at the later films there are there are like eight or nine avid costello meet somebody films yeah <laughs> you know the, the killer boris karloff which is an is an odd one but you've also got uh abbott and costello meet the keystone cops well what's that all about well it's a way of <laughs> taking a small market marketable set of characters or uh, something that that's marketable and throwing it into a formula that works it's formulaic yeah of all the the that sort of stuff where you have the the sequels and the repeats typically speaking the first one 
is the best. This was the first Abbott and Costello meet someone film. So it is the best and one of my favorite movies from childhood. And I just hope that someone out there goes and finds a copy of it so they can enjoy it as much as I did as a seven-year-old on Sunday morning. Oh, yeah. With Channel 11. Yeah, what it, I'd love to see somebody watch it for the first time and enjoy it as much. Oh, you as, missed as, out. As, I got, I got have, you know. I got That's to play just, it for my. I got to play it for my son. My son is ten years old, and um, he he likes monsters, and so I exposed him to the film, and it, he loved it. Uh, and awesome. Oftentimes, when it's time to go to sleep, and he wants to con me into letting him stay up late, he'll say, "Put on the put on the movie with the silly guys and the monsters." <laughs> And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm a sucker for that. Sure, why not? So there's another 90 minutes of consciousness for him. <laughs> awesome. Once again, maybe, maybe someday he'll say, you know, oh, this is a film I used to watch with my dad and tell his son, let's watch this. It's, it's, it's kind of cool. Well, you know, I can't think of a better way to, uh, to end it. That's, that's, that's what I was trying great. to do. I was, try, I was trying to bring us to a, a, a happy climax here. That, that's a, it couldn't have done any better. That's a great, great note to go out on because, I mean, that's what we're doing the podcast for is to hopefully turn somebody else on to some of these great films that may have never seen them before and keep them alive, you know. So that's cool. That's really and cool. F- and for an hour's worth of time, I can pretend to be Tony Mercer, which makes it all worthwhile. <laughs> oh, he'll love that. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, man, this has been a blast, Joe. I'm glad we got to do this. Hopefully, I won't, uh, yeah, I won't let real life get in the way as much, and we do it again a little sooner next time. Well, let me just let me just say, as a fan, thank you, Rob, for doing this, and it means a lot to to some of us out here. It means a lot to me, and I am a diehard fan, and I'd never miss oh. a podcast. And uh, you're doing well, something that's that's good. And well, thank you, sir. Thank you. I, you know, I really appreciate that. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna uh, get a little verklempt here. Uh, oh, <laughs> that's cool. It's nice to know that somebody's listening anyway. <laughs> well, I remember I was but we a, will I was definitely a... we will definitely do this again. Uh, and it won't be as much time it goes by. Excellent. Before the next one. Right on. Well, that's it for tonight. And uh, right. thanks for being here, Joe. I, it was my pleasure. Trust me, it really was my pleasure. Till next time. Good night, everybody. Bye.